We're going to be uh, we're going to be in Psalm 37 today. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of this passage or of this uh, scripture. And Psalm 37 is really a, a a meditation on faithfulness. It's a meditation on what it means to be faithful. Now, uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, we have been in a uh, series over the summer on the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is a list of characteristics that Christians possess uh, that we see laid out in Galatians chapter 5. And the big message of Galatians one of the, the main themes is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within us. And the evidence of God dwelling in us is that we manifest, we express these particular character attributes. And there's a list of them. It's not an exhaustive list, but it gives you the gist that Christians look different. Christians uh, are people transformed by the grace of God. And that has a tangible effect on the way that we live our lives. And so the fruit of the Spirit is meant to show us that God is not just after forgiving us of sin, though that's certainly a great gift of the gospel. God is also after the transformation of our souls, the transformation of our character. And that's the power of the Spirit of God in his saints. And faithfulness is a particular characteristic that I think is relevant to us today. Faithfulness is, is, is the bread and butter of the Christian life. Um, and, and personally, I mean, I, I think about all that we've gone through this past year, especially with COVID, and it has been draining. I mean, regardless of what you think about masks or vaccines or the politics of it all. I think all of us can agree the disruption to normal life, the increased anxiety and uncertainty has been, has taken a toll on us. And I think the temptation, whenever things out of our control are happening in the world around us, is when it comes to our faith and when it comes to church, we have a temptation to check out. We, we feel disoriented by the world. Life is no longer normal. And I've felt that temptation as well. But the call to faithfulness is specifically for times of uncertainty. Think about that. And when God calls his people to faithfulness, it's because there's always going to be obstacles to that. And that the church throughout the ages has adjusted to the uncertainties of the world. That we have to make adjustments, we have to change things, we have to do a live stream, we have to do, you know, figure out different ways to do church. And, and despite those difficulties, the call to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to God, does not change. And I find great comfort in the witness of the church through the ages. Think about Moses, you know, with this nation of former slaves wandering around in the desert. They don't have a home, so what do they do? They build tents and they carry the tabernacle around with them. And then Israel, they go into exile. They have no king. They're occupied by foreign powers. They have no temple to worship him. And and what do they do? They they gather in synagogues, in exile. And in the New Testament church, Christians are being persecuted. They they can't worship in the synagogues, the temple. 
so they worship in homes. There's an adjustment, but the call is the same. There are no perfect conditions for faithfulness to God. Never has been. The church has weathered wars and famines and plagues, things way more difficult than what we're facing, and persevered and remained faithful to the call to be Christians. Adjustments are made. Things have, innovations have to be made. New ways of thinking and doing things are done, but, but the call is the same. And I, and I want to encourage us today that the call to faithfulness is as relevant today as it was in the first century, the fifth century, the twelfth century, the, what, the 20th, and all the way up to now. And Psalm 37 gives us that hope on how to be faithful. Now, when we talk about faithfulness, though, sometimes we can over-spiritualize that. We can, we can get a little uh, romanticized about faithfulness. But what I love about Psalm 37 is it talks about faithfulness for normal people, ordinary people. And uh, something that I've noticed with people who graduate from college, you know, from postgraduates, a lot of people have difficulty after college cultivating their faith. Some of them lose their faith or, or they just feel disconnected from what was so vibrant and energetic in college has now faded and there's a disillusionment or discontent. Uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley, he's a professor in, uh, at the Queens College, at the, Ki- Kings Co- sorry, the Kings College in New York City. And uh, he, he works with a lot of college students and he works with people uh, post, postgraduate as well. And he noticed that a lot of them were burnt out and, and this is the re- one of the reasons he thinks that's happening, why so many millennials and Gen Zers after college are being burnt out in their faith. He says this. He calls it the new legalism. Today's millennial generation is being fed the message that if they don't do something extraordinary in this life, they are wasting their gifts and potential. And the sad result is that many young adults feel ashamed if they settle into ordinary jobs, get married early, and start families live in small towns, or as 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, aspire to live quietly and to mind their affairs and to work with their hands. For too many millennials, their greatest fear in this life is being an ordinary person with a non-glamorous job, living in the suburbs, and having nothing spectacular to boast about. I mean, there's many calls to be radical and passionate about your faith. That can actually be a crushing burden. Where we're taking our need for approval and to achieve and just transferring it to the Christian life and crushing our souls in the middle of it. When the Bible, most of the people, most of the faithful Christians throughout all of church history will never know them. And no one's going to remember us right? Most of us are just going to be anonymous, faithful people, and that's okay. And here's the irony. When you are just ordinary in your faithfulness, that's radical. That's countercultural. Being normal, faithful, disciplined, consistent people in the actual lives that we live. Not some fantasy life out there, but today, here, now, with the actual relationships jobs and families that we have. And Psalm 37 gives us a portrait of that faithfulness. Faithfulness for normal people. I think there's a few key ways in which we can cultivate faithfulness in our lives from 
the first seven verses of Psalm 37. And I think the, the first key is this. We need to set our minds on God. If you want to be faithful to God, you've got to set your mind on God. If you look at the first three verses of Psalm 37, we get a few commands. We're told to fret not, we're told to trust, and we're told to delight. Okay, those are, those are three. Those aren't the only commands, but those are three I want to focus on in terms of setting our minds on God. Let's look at that first one. The very first verse, what's, what does God tell us? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is don't fret and envy those who don't know God, those who walk in sin. Now, why does God warn us to do this? Because he knows we'll be tempted to do it, right? Why does he tell us not to fret? Because he knows that we're going to fret. Why does he tell us not to envy? Because he knows that we're going to envy. We're tempted to look at the world, and they're doing things sinfully, but they seem to be receiving prosperity for it, and the things that we kind of want. And here we are trudging away, trying to be faithful, trying to have integrity, trying to be, have integrity in our work, in our marriages, and all these things, and we're just like, is this faithfulness to God even worth it? Now, that's not a weird thing to think about. That, that is a problem that the wisdom literature in the Bible addresses, and Psalm 37 addresses it that, that head on. What happens when we are surrounded by the wicked, by people doing evil, who are prospering, and those who are seeking righteousness are either not prospering or even suffering. What do we do with that? And, and the psalmist David tells us this. First, stop fretting about it. Stop looking at it. Get off the social media. Get off the Netflix. Get, turn your eyes away from looking at man. Don't negotiate with it. Fret not. Stop it. Stop looking at the world around you and set your eyes on the Lord. Okay, what does it mean to set your eyes on the Lord? Now let's translate that Christianese, right? It means if we fret not, we, just, we don't just turn away from looking and envying the world, but we look toward God by trusting Him and delighting in Him. Right? We trust the Lord. I mean, when you envy evildoers, and that's I mean, what a straightforward way to just call it in the Bible. He says, evildoers, when we envy those who are walking in sin, we're believing a narrative, right? We're believing that what they're doing is true and right and good. But God says, remember who you are. You're a Christian. You belong to me. So if you trust me, what are you believing? That I am good and that the things that I tell you are good and true. God is Immutable, he never changes. He's stable, secure, reliable, good, and trustworthy. Now, if those things are true about God, then trusting God is not some static thing where we look at these propositions about God and we check them and go, I believe those things. Trusting leads to delight in God. Because if that's true, if God really is faithful and good and all-wise, and his commands are faithful, good, and all-wise, then we should not only accept them as true, but delight in them and be grateful that they are true. Delight is what motivates our faithfulness. 
And it is this joy in his good character and purpose that is the engine for our consistency in our life, for being faithful to the word of God, to being faithful to serve Christ. And God does not just want us to do his law. He wants us to love his law. Right? Think about what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. Oh Lord, how I love your law. I love it because it represents to me your goodness and your wisdom and your care for your people, that you would speak to them, that you would condescend to direct them in the right path. This is why you give rules to your toddlers, to your kids. You have house rules. You have external rules that you give to them. And what's the goal of that? That one day they won't need them. They won't need you to tell them what to do. It'll be internalized. The things that you teach them will be written on their hearts. And isn't that what the Bible talks about? What is God's goal? That the law be written on our hearts. The things that God commands and the desires of our hearts are aligned. God wants us not just to do the law, but to love the law, to delight in obedience. But God goes further right? We're required to delight in God. He doesn't give us extra points because we do that. That is simply what we owe God. We owe him our obedience. But God is so gracious that he adds rewards and blessings to our obedience. He doesn't have to do that, but his gracious character is such that he does. Not only, look at verse 4, not only are we to delight yourself in the Lord. So verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in land and be found faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what's the promise? And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now we get skeptical with these verses. What are you talking about? He's going to give me like a sports car or something like that. Like, like if, is, is, is this like a name it and claim it type, type of like prosperity gospel verse? Well, no, but it's also in the Bible. And we don't want to spiritualize this away. In, the right, in our right attempt to avoid some kind of prosperity gospel message, we sometimes paper over what the Bible is explicitly saying. Sometimes we do this practically by playing Miss America with God. This is what I mean by that. You ever see the Miss America pageant? They ask the contestants different questions, and one of the questions is, uh, what would you most like to see in your lifetime? And all the contestants give the safe answer that everyone wants to hear, world peace, right? And sometimes we go to God, and God's like, what are your desires? And you go, Lord, it's you. Now, our desire should be for God, right? But that's not exactly what he's asking. He wants to know, what are the things you long for? He's not looking for us to perform in front of him. What are the desires of your heart? For most of us in this room, it's not for sinful things, right? I mean, if you delight in the Lord, you're not going to delight sinful things. So you're not going to ask for things that God is against. But for most of us, when we look at this, we're hesitant because we have many good desires, godly desires. And sometimes we're afraid to bring those to the Lord. And this can create a suspicion toward God. Sometimes we're like a little kid. We got like a, you know, a toy behind our hand and we go up to our parents and the parents are like, what's in your hand? You're like, nothing. And God's like, open your hand. What are the desires of your heart? What are you longing for? Sometimes our temptation is to focus on that second part. What are the mechanics of God giving us the desires of our hearts 
when we miss the first part, are you delighting in the Lord? And if you delight in the Lord, a few things happen. Well, first, delighting in the Lord changes your desires, doesn't it? I mean, our relationships shape our desires. When you had your first child, didn't your desires in life change? Or friendships in your life that have been impactful, haven't they shaped the things that you aspire to in life? Our relationships transform the things we long for. How much more with God? So are you delighting in the Lord? Are you letting him shape the desires of your heart? But he can't shape them unless you give them over to him. So God's relationship to us will change us, but also oftentimes our failure to delight in the Lord is because we doubt his goodness, not in general, but to us, to you specifically. That's, you know, we, we get it. God is good to the people out there and to all those, you know, crazy books, of, you know, where, where, where people are doing amazing things for God. God is active in their lives. He cares about them. But for us, he ignores us. We can feel that. So the call to delight, we're afraid of being disappointed. We have this suspicion of God. But to delight in the Lord is to take the real longings of, your, of our heart and say, God, if you really are this good, and you are, and you're faithful, then you're going to be faithful with these desires. So I'm going to give these good desires, and I'm going to say, Lord, these are better in your faithful and loving hands than they are in mine. That I want you to have these because you care about me. Think about You care about me more than I care about myself. What is the Lord's Prayer? Think about what he says. Ask me for your daily bread. It's so, so practical. Every day I want you to go before me and go, God, I need these things. He tells us to ask him for those things. God cares about the desires of your actual life. And part of faithfulness and part of growing in that joy is being honest about those things and watching what he does with it. So are you delighting in the Lord? God wants us to be joyfully faithful. What drew you to Christianity? The Holy Spirit, yes. The preaching of the word, yes. But let's talk like human beings for right now. What, what, when you think about the experience of your life, a big part of it was seeing joyful Christians, wasn't it? Maybe it was your parents growing up, a joyful home that loved the Lord, or a mentor, or a pastor, or a roommate in college. Or, you know, a campus ministry group that invited you in and you saw joy in their hearts. Joyful Christianity. Delighting in the Lord. That's what God desires. Not begrudging obedience. But people who delight in the Lord. Because what does that do? People go, wow, they're delighting because they know God. Is God not the fountain of goodness and faithfulness? He is. And so those who drink of that fountain are themselves going to be joyful in faith. I'm not saying happy, clappy, like, you know, some superficial, whatever, toxic positivity or something like that. I'm talking about real, rooted, deep joy. People who have the joy of knowing Jesus. We belong to God. We, we, we can't forget that. What is it that takes away your delight in the Lord? What are the suspicions you have of God? Bring those to the Lord. See what he does. See what he does when you entrust him with the real things that you long for. I think that'll be transformative. So we set our minds on the Lord by trusting and delighting in him, by giving our deepest longings to him and watching him transform them and us. But we also need to commit 
our ways to the Lord. That's the second thing. We commit our ways to the Lord. The Psalms speak of two paths in life. The path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Now you look at Psalm 1. The path of the righteous, they meditate on the word of the Lord and they're flourishing and their, their leaves are never dry and in every season they prosper. But Psalm 37 goes, yeah, but what happens when that's not the case? What happens when the wicked prosper? What do we do then? And Psalm 37 says you need to have perspective. The wicked are prospering for now. And the righteous are suffering for now. You might feel discouraged and you're wondering what's going on. But add that last part, for now. In the end, we have God will be faithful to his promises. And we have to have a long view in mind. God rules this world. He's not, this is not some philosophy we made up just because we're afraid of dying and we you know, want to gather here and make ourselves feel good. No, we believe that Christ is Lord, that God really does reign and created this whole world. He created us and he rules every square inch of it. And if that's true, then we're going to have the attitude that he shows us in verse 2. What's going to happen to the wicked? They're going to fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And later on in Psalm 37, he says the wicked are going to be cut off and destroyed. There's an end. God is in control. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. And we have a temptation when we envy the wicked. What we're doing is we're watching one scene of a movie thinking we know the whole story. I remember watching a a movie about a a protagonist who was, uh, you know, he started off like this blue-collar good guy who just wanted to provide for his family, and then he gets into a life of crime, and by the end, he's estranged everybody, and he's this lonely old guy in a retirement home. Right? That's the totality of his life. Now, if you were to watch the movie to the halfway point, you'd be like, man, this guy's sinning and getting away with it. He's rich. He's got all the things that he wants, all the pleasures that he wants. The problem is, that's only half the movie. You haven't seen the outcome of his life. And at the end of that life of sin, you find despair and destruction and tragedy. You have to have a long view in mind. And God gives us the end from the beginning. The righteous will flourish one day and the wicked will fade away. And this is so important, this long-term perspective. And think about why, what what does commitment entail? Effort over the long haul, right? Commitment is what we need precisely when we don't feel like doing what we know we should do. And and the idea of committing to the Lord, in the Hebrew, it's this idea of rolling over your weight, your entire weight onto something else. So God wants us to roll the weight of every aspect of our lives on to him. And this is a continual process. Commitment assumes there will be obstacles and fluctuations. And it's precisely because we have different moods and life is unpredictable and things are out of our control. It's precisely because God knows that he tells us to be committed to him. Roll the weight of your life onto him day in and day out. Especially when the emotions are low. But listen to this promise that God gives. Again, God is so gracious in attaching promises to his commands. If we commit our way to him, what's he going to do? What does it say in verse 5? Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will act. He will act on behalf of his people. 
How will he do it? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. In other words, God sees the quiet faithfulness in your life that nobody else sees and that you wonder is producing any fruit and he takes note of it and one day he will publicly vindicate you either in this life or the next, that nothing you do is wasted, that he knows the effort you put in. And he says, don't lose hope. God does not count the faithfulness of his people as, as irrelevant or cheap, or he, he, he's pleased by it. And he will vindicate his saints. And this has happened already. We can barely name one Roman emperor, but we know John, we know Paul, we know Mark, we know Matthew, we know Luke, we know Mary. We name our kids after them. Has God not vindicated his saints? Has God not flipped the world upside down by a bunch of fishermen and prostitutes? God will vindicate his people. And he calls us to roll over the weight of our lives onto him and trust him. What is it? And, and if God is in control of this world, that means that every day in this world matters. Ordinary life matters. So you, you know, you decide, I've got, to, I've got to lead my family in family devotions. And after one week, you're like, are we doing anything? Is this even working? The kids are crying. It's frustrating. People's attention spans are low. And what's the Bible's encouragement to you? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him. He's going to act. He's going to take care of your family. You, you keep going. Keep going. Commit your way to the Lord. You, you have a hard week of work. You're trying to love your neighbors yourself. You're trying to be a witness for the gospel. You're trying to be faithful and not take shortcuts and have integrity, and it's difficult. What's God's encouragement to you? Commit your way to the Lord. He'll take care of you. He will act on your behalf. Roll over your life onto him. Commit your life, and God will act. We often overestimate what we can accomplish in a year, but underestimate what can happen in five, right? Anyone, you know, end of the year and you look at your resolutions and you're just like, I feel terrible. <laughs> you're just like, I don't think I did any of these. But think about five years. For some of you, you were a high schooler in five, five years ago. Some of you, you weren't even married. Some of you didn't have kids. Some of you weren't in the job you're at. Think about all that God has done in five years. And you will realize God has been acting. God has been honoring your commitment to him. Think of it, you were at a hospital and someone in scrubs gave you a human being and said, raise it. And you took that human being home and you did that multiple times. How did you do that? You stood before a whole church of people and you said, I do. Not even having any idea what marriage means. And here you are. How did you do it? You started that job, you were nervous, and now you're five years into it. How did you do it? God acted, didn't he? Right? Hasn't he been faithful in your life? Has it been difficult? Of course. Have there been ups and downs? Yes. But God has been faithful. And the most difficult things in our lives are also the most joyful, aren't they? I mean, things that require the most sacrifice, the most dying to ourselves, are also the most rewarding and long-lasting and satisfying things in our life. This is by design. But it's going to take time. But commit your way to the Lord. He will act. Be faithful to him. And you will see his faithfulness to you. But that doesn't preclude setbacks and disappointments and difficulties. In fact, it is specifically in those moments 
that God calls us to be faithful. So commit your way to the Lord. Set your mind on the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. And finally, discipline your actions for the Lord. All the type A people are excited. Here's the, here's the action points, things that you can do. Okay, there's a couple things. This is not a passive endeavor. We have to be proactive in the way we live our lives if we want to be faithful. There's one, the, the first command I want to look at is to do good. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. So there's something required of us. We trust in God and we do good. Now, these, these are linked together. If we believe that God is good, his ways are better than our ways, then we're going to do what he says, and what he says will be good. It's a natural outflowing of trust in God. Obedience flows out of trust in God's goodness. And here's a, a, a really important concept I want you to have, that God's commands are his blessings. God's commands are his blessings. What do I mean by that? Think about in uh, Genesis 1 and 2. When God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, was that a command or a blessing? Or when uh, he gave Adam this land where he would, this garden where he would prosper and walk with God and eat of the fruit and he was called to keep it, was that a command or a blessing? Or when you became a father or a mother, was that a command or a blessing? Yes. It was both, wasn't it? God's commands are blessings. It is good for us to obey God. That when we obey God, we find that walking in that path is the path of blessing. Later on in Psalm 37, it talks about the man who delights in the law of the Lord has secure steps. His path is, is secure. Why? Because God cares about our lives more than we do. God is wise, and if we walk in his paths, it's the best thing for us. So we are to do good. We trust and we obey. The second thing is he tells us in verse 3 to dwell in the land and befriend faithless. Now these things are linked together as well. Dwell in the land. Enjoy the land. Live in the land. Be faithful and cultivate in the land and befriend. Make friends with faithfulness. What does it mean to dwell in the land? Remember the Psalms, these are the Psalms of Israel. And what was Israel told throughout the Bible? You're gonna, when, when Moses took Israel out of Egypt, God promised them a land, a place, a, an inheritance. And he says, when you have this land, this is my gift to you, but it's also my stewardship, that you were to take this land, cultivate it, and use it to glorify God. So to dwell in the land is to enjoy God's good gifts and steward it for his glory. And that requires us to make friends with faithfulness. Uh, the Hebrew scholar Alec Moitier translates faithfulness, trustworthiness. And I like that nuance onto it. God has entrusted his blessings to us. He's entrusted his goodness and the good things that he gives us to us. In Romans chapter 4, we learn that God's promise to Abraham that his offspring are going to have a land is expanded. In Romans 4, he says, Abraham actually inherits the world that all of creation will belong to Abraham and his family. And in Galatians, Paul tells us that we, by faith, if we're in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. We become part of Abraham's family, which means we inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That this world is our inheritance. And when Christ returns to rule it, he will, we will be co-heirs with that. 
So this world matters. We dwell in this land by being faithful because we've been called to steward the good things of creation for his glory. Now, how do you practically befriend faithfulness? Well, it's primarily by imitation. Imitation is one of the, maybe least talked about, but, but one of the most potent forms of discipleship. Teaching is important. Application is important. But imitation, that intangible stuff, watching the stuff that we pick up when we don't even realize we're picking it up, that is what molds us. John Piper, he has this great quote where he talks about how uh, he says, I believe the Bible because my mama told me so. My mama believed the Bible. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Imitation is formative in our lives. The greatest influences in our lives are those who modeled faithfulness to us. And, and we see this even in Scripture. Timothy looks, or, uh, Paul looks to Timothy. Timothy, this great young pastor, and he says, I thank God for your mom and your grandma. Why? Because when you were a kid, they taught you the Scriptures. That was the foundation of his life. A faithful mom and a faithful grandma reading psalms to him at night. That's powerful. Imitation matters. The book of Proverbs, imitate the ant and how diligent he is. Hebrews 11, imitate all these faithful men and women of God who have gone before you and how they endured suffering and how they had faith to obey God. Imitate Jesus, right? We're Christ's followers. We imitate him. Imitation matters. That's how we learn faithfulness. And speaking of imitating the faithfulness of Jesus, how often do we imitate his practice of being still before the Lord? I mean, how many times in the gospel do we hear Jesus leave the crowds, leave the disciples to pray in solitude before the Father? Look at verse 7 of Psalm 37. Here's another action point. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hurry up and be still. This is very difficult. How often do we discipline ourselves to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him to act on our behalf? That's actually part of faithfulness. But I think we'd much rather have a list of hurried religious activities than to actually sit before God. That's a terrifying reality. We want a new devotional plan, a new Bible study, a new evangelism, a new ministry effort, all these things. All these things are good. But if we miss this thing, we've missed the whole thing. Part of faithfulness to God is being with God being with. I mean, we know that intuitively about our relationships. Being with each other is part of faithfulness. The philosopher Blaise Pascal once quipped that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. You sit there before God and the distractions of your life come up, the worries and the anxieties of your life come up, the doubts come up. Instead of actually beginning with prayer from that place, it terrifies us. We don't want to be still. We don't want to confront our mortality. 
just how little control we have over life. And yet that is the beginning of faithfulness to God, being with him, being who we are with him, not who we think we should be at this point, but who we actually are from the ground up. This is not some Zen Buddhist you know, experience of um, I'm one with the Lord or something like that. This is, this is hard work. This is chastening your desires and your emotions and your distractions and setting them before God and sitting there and relating and struggling with the Lord. There's a great line from the movie First Reformed, which is about a, a, a pastor going through this crisis of faith. And he writes in his journal, he says this, how easily they talk about prayer those who have never prayed. How easily it is to talk about prayer for those who have never really prayed. I think this might be the most challenging thing, to be still before the Lord with our actual hearts from where we actually are, how distracted we are, how weak we are, the idols of our heart. But if we don't do that, we will miss out on seeing the graciousness of the Lord, the kindness and the tenderness of God in the actual details of our lives. It forces us to contend with whether we really think God hears, cares, and wants to help us. We need practice in this area. We need to be faithful, not only in doing good and having these activities, but in being with God. And that is, that's a turning point for a lot of people. Be still and wait for the Lord to act. And all of these things, setting our minds on God, committing our ways, and disciplining our actions, they're meant to bring us to God. That's the point. Right? We were not primarily made to do great things for God. We were made to be with God. Commune with Him. Why does God forgive us of our sins? So that the enmity between us and God can be broken and we can be with Him. Why does He promise us eternal life? So that we can live forever with Him. Why does he give us the spirit of God to transform us so that we become people who love him? Everything is so that we would be with him. This is God's radical call on your life to be with him. And we are doing that right now. His word is coming to you. We were singing to him. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You're going to receive a benediction. Church isn't like, okay, you're like, oh, I got to be with God. I'll do that when I get home. It's happening right now. We're the saints of God. The Spirit is here. We are before the Father. His word is being, pre- it's happening right now. Don't miss that. Church is not primarily a means to get good vibes for the week, how to manage your life, a nice way to meet people. Those are all wonderful things. Church is when the saints of God meet with God. That's what we're doing right now. It's happening in our midst. And this entire worship of God here is part of our faithfulness to him, but it's always a response to his faithfulness to us. All of life is a gift. That's the motivation. That's what keeps us going. That's what God is like. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. 
how it speaks so powerfully into our lives. And we pray that you would help make us faithful, that you would help us to delight in you, to commit our ways to you, to set our minds upon you.